Holy Father, we pause one more time here, firstly thanking you for life itself, for Jesus Christ who has guaranteed us eternal life, and for your Holy Word that can show us the way to Jesus Christ. Bless us as we talk about your Word. May we draw closer to you as a result of our time together here. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. Would you open your Bibles, please, to that letter, the letter of Peter, specifically second epistle of Peter, the second epistle of Peter, and I'm sure you're acquainted with this verse because the study of the Holy Spirit's work definitely includes the inspiration of the Word of God. Do you agree? Second Peter chapter 1 verse 20 and verse 21. Second Peter 1 verse 20 and 21. I've got, by the way, four different Bible, five different Bible translations here. We're going to talk about that, the battle about the Bible. Notice it says bomb or bomb. Versions, diversions, or perversions, question mark. So I'm going to read from the New King James Version right now. Knowing, verse 20, this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And my goal, my hope, my prayer today is that as we spend time on what sometimes is an issue that generates more heat than light, that we will keep in mind this very, very important factor that the Bible was inspired by whom? By God, the Holy Spirit. No question about that. When we know that, then we have to simply come together and say, how can we best understand this? Because we know that according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17, Paul speaks to Timothy and says, you know that the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Scriptures were taught of you when you were a kid. They lead you to Jesus Christ. And then he talks about all Scripture being inspired by God, verse 16 and 17, and the purpose of Scripture. So this is a very contentious topic. Now, incidentally, last night, there were few of you here last night, but just a quick review. Last night, we started with a question. If I ask you, the day that changed the world, what do you think about? And in a nutshell, the conclusion was, from a prophetic perspective, the day that changed the world was the 2300th day of apocalyptic prophecy. And what is that? 1844. For Adventists, think about that. The day that changed the world was 1844. Incidentally, I just came across this, and this I printed off uh, May 29. So you know, this is hot off the press. <laughs> okay, listen to this. Now, I'm not here promoting Dan Brown's movie. Please don't misunderstand. But it's an, something that was dealing with that. I read the news. It says a line from Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code tells you why it's easily the most disputed religious novel of all time. Here's the, a line from it. Quote, Almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false. 
That's what the novel falsely claims. Okay. Now, let me go further. Very interesting. Bart Ehrman, religion chair at the University of North Carolina. Is that a religious school? No. University of North Carolina. Listen to Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, religion chair at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, likens the phenomenon surrounding the Da Vinci's Code, listen to this, to the excitement of the 19th century when, according to Ehrman, deluded masses thought Jesus would return in what? 1844. Bart Ehrman speaks as though everybody knows 1844. This is, a pop, this is a public news. It's like, wow. And this, by the way, is on Yahoo News. It's like, if you don't know 1844, where have you been? <laughs> I found that very interesting. This was this week. So apparently it's supposed to be a well-known fact that 1844 was a major event in this world's history. Was it? Yes, it was. And this religion chair at the University of North Carolina speaks thus. So, and then he says uh, this uh, whole issue of the, uh, Da Vinci Code is quite unlike anything we have experienced in our lifetime. In other words, 1844 is simply understood to be a globally recognized phenomenon of religious excitement. But you know what Ehrman didn't tell you? While there was religious excitement, on the other hand, as I mentioned last night, I am convinced that there was another force, the former covering cherub, one who knows about Bible prophecy enough to use, the better term is abuse the Bible. And at the same time, while God was raising up a people to recapture forgotten or lost important biblical truths on the one hand. On the other hand, this other power, the devil himself, I have no question in my mind, was trying to counter it with major global movements. So last night, I shared with you just very briefly two global movements that arose in 1844. Many are aware that 1844 was a critical time for the rising of the communist uh, uh, group of people. Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, we talked about that last night that offered a pseudo-heaven. You don't need to wait for Jesus to come. We can provide heaven on earth, was what they claimed. Get rid of religion, because religion is the opiate of the people. And of course, communism became a hell on earth for many. The same time between 1843 and 1845, that's the best uh, window in which they can nail it down, dispensationalist theologians say, Char uh, John Nelson Darby um, created... A theory that right now, more than 50% of all Americans in general believe in the rapture. The rapture theory arose when? Right there between 1843 and 1845. That's the closest they can nail it down. Few people are aware of it. And the rapture theory says, don't worry if you're a Christian, you won't have to suffer tribulation at the end, number one. Second lie, you have a second chance. If you don't go to heaven during the rapture, you can repent. And third... Third problem with the rapture theory, if you don't make it by the time Jesus comes back, don't worry, you have a third chance. Did you know that? That is in the book by the well-known authors in the book on prophecy, America's best-known sellers. I won't mention their names, but there's a book called um, Are We Living in the End Times, published in 1999, and they say you have a third chance. During the first 100 years of the millennium, you can still repent. That's the rapture theory. When did it arise? Between 1843 and 1845. Now I want to go to, the, to a third major issue. I mentioned these two last night. The two that arose to counter the true doctrine of the second coming of Jesus. Okay? 
The third issue, the third major movement was the issue concerning the Bible. So I'm going to go through some of these pictures rapidly because I want us to open our Bibles here. You brought your Bibles. This is a time of Bible study. But first, just a quick um, mentioning of a few issues here to get us going. As you well know, the Bible writers... Um, just a second, sorry. I forgot something important. Okay. Um, I mentioned already, uh, writing by inspiration, they listened to what the Lord gave them, and as they wrote, we know that this is uh, the original manuscripts in the Old Testament were in what language? Hebrew, primarily, and secondarily in what? Aramaic, yes. Then the New Testament was written in Greek, yes, you know that as well. Um, incidentally, uh, the the uh, Old Testament was translated into the Greek language uh, around the third century before Christ. That was the first translation. And then the Greek was translated, the, the New Testament, etc., was translated into Syriac, and then later into Latin. And then by the mid-15th century, the Bible was available in only 33 different languages. Okay? Translation of scripture took a long time. In fact, for the first 20 centuries, the Bible was translated into uh, only something like 71 languages. Now, here's a picture of uh, John Wycliffe, a little closer up of John Wycliffe. He was one of the translators of the Bible into English. Okay, and then, of course, a picture also uh, of John, uh, of William Tyndale, another one of our Bible translators here, William Tyndale, and uh, they began to translate the Bible. Now, what's interesting is this. Um, during the first 20 centuries, the Bible was translated into 71 languages, but from 1800 to 1844, within 44 years, the Bible was translated into 112 additional languages. Incredible speeding up of the translation. When I say the Bible, both in the first 20 centuries, when I, the Bible or parts thereof. This, by the way, is a picture of the first Gutenberg press, as you can see here. Every man in his own language, the Word of God grew and multiplied. Incredible, because here was a time when the British and foreign society and the American Bible societies came along. They began to translate the Bible. An incredible thing began to take place. Leroy Edwin Froome, one of the best-known, well-respected Adventist historians, said this. It was all clearly part of the infinite and plan and purpose of God preparatory to the great final proclamation in all the world of the everlasting gospel to every kindred a nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The Bible became available to more and more people in their own language at the right time when it was needed. However, folks, not everybody was happy. Now, this is very interesting. This is historical detail. I am not uh, here wanting to uh, cast aspersion upon anybody because I praise God that our wonderful believing Christians in many churches around the world. Do you believe that? We're not talking about people. We're dealing with issues here. And I just praise God for that. Uh, I'm glad you're here so we can look deeper into this. Because I said not everyone was happy that these Bibles were being translated into different uh, uh, and making, made available in different languages to all different kinds of people so that they could read it for themselves. This is a picture of Pope Gregory the Sixteenth, And in 1844, Pope Gregory made this Statement, And he sent this as a letter that was published in the newspaper in New York. Those Bible societies only care 
audaciously to stimulate all to a private interpretation of the divine oracles, to inspire contempt for the divine traditions which the Catholic Church preserves upon the authority of the Holy Fathers. The reading of the Bible translated into the common tongue, they use the word vulgar in Old English, should not be permitted. And uh, they, they were not happy that the Bible was now available to everybody. And finally, uh, at the end, the Pope says, we confirm and renew the decrees against the publication, distribution, reading, and possession of books of Holy Scripture translated into the vulgar or common tongue. So there was no, not much joy that this was being made available. Um, at this time, 1844, a direct attack upon the Bible societies and upon making the Bibles readily available. Um, because now the common people could read it. Now it's very interesting, around the same time, Ellen White was making statements about this whole issue. In fact, talking about uh, what had happened to the Bibles in the past, she said this, Popes and priests presumed to take an exalted position and taught people to look to them to pardon their sins instead of looking to Christ for themselves. The Bible was kept from them, from the common people, in order to conceal the truths which would condemn them. The people called for the Bible, but priests considered it dangerous to let them have the Word of God to read for themselves, lest they become enlightened. And she ended up saying, uh, But I saw that God had a special care for His Word. He protected it. And in the last days, copies of the Bible were to be so multiplied that every family should possess it. Very interesting. So Ellen White's saying, let's have everybody have a copy of the Bible. Same time she's promoting, let's have people have copies. We have Pope Gregory saying, don't pass out the Bible. Now, I'm going to have to fast forward from 1844, move way ahead quickly to 160 years. I'm going to go over here intentionally. 160 years from 1844 is what year? Mathematicians? 2004. That's right. Just two years ago, my wife Linda and I were invited to go to a general conference uh, Bible symposium on the island of the Dominican Republic. Wonderful opportunity, especially since it was all expenses paid, hotel accommodation for husband and wife, and food, free food as well. So I said yes. Yeah, and I was glad to go there. I had a paper to present. Uh, this was calling together different scholars from the church to talk about important issues. How should we, how do we as Seventh-day Adventists approach the Bible? I presented a paper on biblical authority for lifestyle issues in life. Uh, my, my, one of my uh, studies in my, in my graduate work was ethics. When I was finished with my pre presentation on ethics, one professor raised his hand and said, Ron, I'm sorry. I disagree with you. I was telling, talking about being faithful unto death, trusting in the Lord. He said, I disagree with you. I said, why, sir? And he said, because, because Jesus told lies. I said, what? And sure enough, he opened his Bible. Now, I'm not going to tell you where this is. I don't want you to open your Bible, okay? But he opened his Bible and he read this I'll tell you in a minute. So patience, okay? Can you hold your horses, as they say? Just a little patience. And he said, listen, listen, you're wrong about your, your presentation on ethics. I won't tell you who the professor is, because I think some of you know him personally. We're not dealing with personalities here. He's a friend of mine, by the way. It's good to, I, I love it when my friends challenge me, because I know they're not out to harm me. They want to make sure I stay on the straight and narrow. Isn't that true about friends? 
That's right. That's what friends are there for, to help us be faithful. And this is what he read to me. And he was reading, I believe, from the Revised Standard Version. He said, listen to this. Jesus did this. Um, okay. His brothers asked him if he, Jesus, uh, if he was going to go up to Jerusalem. So uh, Jesus said, um, okay, listen carefully. Go to the festival yourselves. I am not going to this festival, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone to the festival, then he also went. He said, you see, Jesus was clever. He lied to his brothers. Open your Bibles now. John chapter 7. Because this, of course, naturally raised an interesting discussion. John chapter 7. Fortunately, this, uh, you know... Fortunately, uh, I've been studying this in this area. As you go to your Bibles, let me caution you folks. If you have a real hurt, whichever side it is, you see, I don't even know. Where's your appendix? Right side, thank you. Oh, I, I put it at the right side, fortunately. Thanks, Jason. Okay. If you have serious appendicitis, okay, and uh, by the way, I know medical expenses are pretty high, but you're very good friends with a mailman. Do you go to him to have him take care of this? Anybody gone to the mailman for... No, you don't. Don't go to the mailman to have him take care of your appendix, okay? And the reason I'm saying this is because there's been a lot of confusion about a lot of issues within Seventh-day Adventism. And, and I praise God that there are many enthusiastic people out there. The mailman might be enthusiastic, but he doesn't know how to take care of your appendix. You want to go to an internist or whoever. What are the people who take care of appendicitis? General, general surgeon? Yeah, you see, I don't even know. Okay, I'm in the place here where you guys know. So don't come to me if you have appendicitis. You know you'll be in trouble. But what I'm trying to say is this. Yes, God gives every one of us important spiritual gifts. You believe that? Let's use them to God's glory. Nobody has a hedge on any gift. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the gifts. The danger is when I try to use a gift that isn't mine. The other danger is when I don't use the gifts that are mine. We must use our gifts. And the reason I'm sharing this is there are many, many convicted people whose gifts are in other areas that are spreading a lot of confusion about Bible translations and so forth. That's all I'm saying. Okay? The unfortunately, and this is not, I'll be clear, clear here, please listen. This is not what we as Seventh-day Adventists officially believe. Okay? I'm going to share with you what Adventism and what the evidence from the internal is. So I know there's enthusiasm out there, but this is not... There's a confusion on either extreme on the issue of Bible translations. Now, let's get back to, you've got the passage open now. I threw that in as, as an aside, and we'll talk about that more in time. Let's look here quickly. Here, I read to you the revised, New Revised Standard Version. Let's now go to the King James Version. Hmm. Chapter 7, verse 8. Go ye up to this feast. I go not up what? Yet, that word is there, three-letter word. I go not up yet. What does that imply? I'm going to go later on. Now, you know what's interesting? This professor raised his hand and said, My Bible says, Jesus said, I am not going up to the feast. Now, if you look at the NASB, New American Standard Bible, is Tad here? He was going to bring that. Correct? It's there. I'm not going up to the feast. All right? New American Standard Bible, New Revised Standard Version. It's not there. What's going on here? Let's go to another example. I want you to go now to a very interesting one, and that is Revelation chapter 22. Seventh-day Adventists is one of our well-known favorite texts. When we use the King James Version, 
Revelation 22, we've used this one in our evangelism for a long time. Revelation 22 verse 14. I'm going to give you just a few uh, quick examples here. And then we ask the question, what's happening? Then we will begin to look at what I believe is a balanced answer to this. Now, I'm going to make a request here. If anybody has been here, don't leave, please. If you leave now, you might go out with the wrong message. So please don't leave. Okay? All right. I just want to caution you. Otherwise, you only say, Dupre says, no, I haven't said. I've just said hello. <laughs> okay? I haven't even introduced myself. I've said, you know, my name is. Okay? And I haven't even... So don't leave now. I've got to finish. And I'm going to be done here today about 11.02. I've talked with Tim already because we'll sing our closing hymn and we'll be out by 11.05. We've already agreed on that. So please don't leave at all. Now, if you have to leave before then, then get a copy of the, uh, whatever, CD. Okay? Please make sure you get a copy because I want to have you get the whole picture. Revelation 22, verse 14. A well-known favorite text of Seventh-day Adventist from the King James. What does it say? Blessed are they that do His commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gate into the city. Now, obviously, doing His commandments is only through His power, working through us, correct? It's not salvation by works, okay? Alright? This is, if you love me, what does Jesus say? Correct. It's the love that drives us to that response of obedience. This is not salvation by works. But, notice now, the other translations. If you have the NIV, if you have the RSV, the NASB, any other translation other than the King James or the New King James, notice what it says. This is essentially what it says. New International Version. Blessed are those who what? Wash their robes. What happened to doing His commandments? Interesting. I, I have once said, is it the law or is it laundry? Okay, another example. Let's go to one more here. Um, uh, the, the thief on the cross. Another, I'll go to some well-known things. By the way, I'm intentionally going to well-known passages. The thief on the cross, Luke chapter 23. We're not going to go to the obscurer ones. Because, by the way, there are some very interesting ones. Ooh, as you go to Luke 23, verse 43, as you turn there, this morning I was just looking at one that might surprise you. Are you aware that, uh, that the keeping of the Sabbath is also undermined? Yeah, in Acts chapter 14, verse 13, verse 42, you'll find that. Uh, the Gentiles keeping the Sabbath is not there. Hmm. The implication is that the Jews only kept the Sabbath. One of our strong arguments has been removed. Also, is fascinating. What is happening here? That's the big question. Now we are in Luke 23, verse uh, 42. That thief on the cross hanging next to Jesus. What did he say to Jesus as he hung on the cross? Now you'll notice again, the King James, what verse is that? 40, 43. Okay, what does he say? 23 verse 43. And um, Jesus said to him, but let's go to his words, verse 42. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when, you, when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now let's go to the New Revised Standard Version or the New International Version. And what does it say? Then he said, Jesus, remember me. The term, the, the recognition of divinity is not there. The word Lord is not there. Fascinating. One more example before we say, how do we resolve this? Where do we go on this? First Timothy, not Second Timothy. First Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. First Timothy 3, 16. Let's go to the one more example. And I said that there are, there are several others that we could look at here, but we have limited time. And I don't want to just outline what we say is the problem 
today, by God's grace, I hope to provide with you a solid, divinely inspired, as not me, <laughs> through God's servant, methodology to resolve these issues. Reading now from the King James Version, or even the New King James Version, they have the same basic thing, First Timothy. I'm going to read from the New King James Version, just so you can see it's virtually the same. Uh, the concepts are the same, a few different words, but they get across essentially the same thing. First Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now notice the next word. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached by the Gentiles, believed on in the world, uh, world received up in glory. Now here's my question. Who is the Bible speaking about here? Jesus. And what does the Bible call Jesus. God. Notice the word. God was manifest in flesh. Now let's go to the other translations, whether it be the New International Version, the New Revised Standard Version. What does it say? And I'm reading from the New International Version right here. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body. Question. Is Jesus referred to as God? No. He's not referred to. So you see, the, there's been a major debate on all of these issues. Now, again, major debate. So today I'm not going to try to resolve all the questions and issues. I'm going to suggest to you a solid, balanced, biblical way to approach these issues. What is going on here? Let's take a few moments to back up now again. We went forward 160 years. Let's take a quick trip back another 160 years. Okay? I'm going to go a little faster back in time now. So I'm going to have to take my coat off here. His name was Constantine Tischendorf. There's a picture, picture of him. He has a much longer name, but in brief, Constantine Tischendorf. Who was he? In a sense, a treasure hunter. He went hunting for ancient manuscripts, and one of his trips took him to this very site. My wife and I have had the privilege to go here. This is the foot of the traditional Mount Sinai, and uh, this is St. Catherine's Monastery. And while he was there, he discovered some manuscripts there. He got so excited about these things, the monks would not release these manuscripts to him. This manuscript, by the way, was eventually called Codex Sinaiaticus. Here's another example of it at the top. Codex Sinai, Sinai, Sinaiaticus, to be more correct, Sinaiaticus, comes from the traditional Mount Sinai. To get uh, Constantine Tischendorf tried to get this out. This was, by the way, what year? 18, what do you think? 1844. Everything happens there. Everything major. This manuscript, together with another one that was discovered in the Vatican, okay, um, that had been sitting there for centuries, they put these two together, and these manuscripts, Vaticanus, that's what they called it, and Sinaiticus, form the basis of basically the New Testament of these modern translations. Now, I don't want you to get confused, but remember this. There's no debate on the Old Testament. That's a fact. Even though some who are not aware of this will say, look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and that is one Hebrew text, one Hebrew manuscript, the Masoretic text. When it comes to the New Testament, however, when it comes to the New Testament, there are two different sets of Greek manuscripts. The manuscripts that are behind the King James Bible, the new, and essentially the New King James, and the manuscripts that are the basis of all other modern translations. Two different streams. And this new stream arose 
from the discoveries essentially of Konstantin Tischendorf. And since then, now before then, there was no confusion really about these issues. There was only one Bible. But since 1844, these things began to cause quite a bit of consternation when they arose. And they arose when uh, Tischendorf discovered this at uh, uh, Mount Sinai. So, now the question is, what do we do with this? And what, how do we answer these problems? Which Bibles then are the best ones to use? How do we know? Now, there are arguments, by the way. Lots of arguments on both sides. Some argue this way, some argue that way. Some say the older manuscripts are the better ones, therefore the new international version, the new revised standard version, these are the better ones. Others argue, oh, these are all Jesuit Bibles. These are all, uh, etc. I'm not worried about focusing on Jesuit. I would like us to focus on the genuine. Because sometimes we can get distracted. So, how do we solve all of these? And I, as a Seventh-day Adventist, am very grateful that God has blessed our church in many ways. And you know what I found out? The more time I spend in digging into the Word and I take seriously the additional help we've been given, I found out that the additional help shows us to get back to the Word of God. What additional help am I talking about? Ellen White, yes, right, fascinating. And you know, there's more evidence. How do I know? I'm going to kind of tell you quickly, just that when I first talked about this, I was finished, I stepped off the platform at a camp meeting, and down the aisle came a PhD in Old Testament. And I'll be honest, I began to quake in my boots. I thought, uh-oh, he's going to come and set me straight. And he walked up to me. Now, I shouldn't have been concerned because he was the pastor that did our marriage counseling 20-something years ago. He performed our marriage he was a friend. Thank God for the friends we have. He walked up to me and said, By the way, Ron, what you've just presented, there is more evidence for what you've just presented. Because the ancient so-called church fathers used the manuscripts that are behind, guess what? The King James Version. They are the older manuscripts. Even older than the so-called old ones that support the new international version. I didn't know that, so I've done further checking on that research, and sure enough. So, but as I went to this, I began to look at the whole issue. Say, now, people know that Ellen White used different Bible translations. You know that, right? Some people are not aware of that. The one thing that bothers me is that when, they, when the people who talk about Bible translations, I've listened, I've read, I've watched DVDs and videos and stuff. Everybody who talks about it as Adventists on Bible translations and who are pro-King James, they never talk about Ellen White. Never. Never talk about her. Why? Because she's a problem. <laughs> I'm putting in quotes, okay? Because you see, Ellen White used something like 10 different marginal readings and Bible translations. What do you do with Ellen White? If she was a prophet of the Lord, did God not show her that these were Jesuit Bibles? Hold on, folks. Okay? Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, I had to do a study. Now, I'm not saying I know everything. I would like to open this up, which is one reason you're going to ask questions at the end. I would like to challenge you to do further study. When I was studying, I was teaching at Southern, where Tim was one of my students. I got interested in this issue. I began to look at Ellen White. Did you know that she quoted 10,000 passages from the Bible in her writings? 10,000! Now, obviously, during the first 40 years of her 70-year ministry, the only English Bible that was really available, one that was used, was the King James Version. No question about that. But of these 10,000 Bible translations, she, uh, Bible quotations, she did quote from other versions, as I pointed out, something like 500 times. So I have begun... 
Thanks for turning that on. <laughs> I have begun to do a study. I say begun because I'm still in the process. I've dug, I've studied, and I found very interesting. Ellen White, in more than about, in that 40 different books that are currently available, 40 different books, quoting 22 old uh, books from the Old Testament, 27 books from the Old Testament, 22 books from the New Testament. She used other translations. Ellen White did not say King James only. Wow, what do we do with that? Very interesting. Ellen White used different Bible translations. However, however, the big question is not did she, how did she? And that's what I want to share with you today in the next five minutes. Because as you look at how she did it, here are some guidelines I would like to leave with you. How did she use these Bible translations? She was a student of the Bible, so that's why I said don't leave today. This is not the Bible bomb, B-O-M-B. It's the Bible bomb, B-A-L-M, okay? Let's go to those four problematic verses quickly. I want to show you what Ellen White does with those Bible, with those problem texts. Let's go firstly to Revelation 22. Uh, what is it? Was that the first one? No, John. Yeah, let's go to that one first. Revelation 22, verse 14. Revelation 22, verse 14. You looked at it already. Okay? And, and the reason we have to go to this is to say, <clears throat> well, how did she handle this? Did you know? Revelation 22, verse 14. Even though Ellen White had available to her for 30 years of her life, other Bible translations, she never, ever quoted the translations that said, Blessed are they who wash their robes. She always went back, Blessed are they who do His commandments, calling for faithfulness to those commandments that reflect His character. What about uh, the issue of um, um, Luke chapter 23, verse 42? The issue of did the thief call Jesus Lord or did you just call him Jesus? I want you to listen now to Desire of Ages. Do you believe Desire of Ages was inspired? Yeah, yeah? okay. She wrote this one, published in, in 1898. Listen to what she says. Talking about the thief on the cross. This is from Desire of Ages. Hope is mingled with anguish in his voice as the helpless dying soul casts himself upon a dying savior. Lord, remember me, he cries, when thou comest into thy kingdom. How grateful then to the savior was the utterance of faith and love from the dying thief. While the Jews deny him, even the disciples doubt his divinity. The poor thief upon the brink of eternity calls Jesus Lord. Many were ready to call him Lord when he wrought miracles and after he had risen from the grave. But none acknowledged him as he hung dying upon the cross save the penitent thief who was saved at the eleventh hour. The bystander caught the words of the thief as the thief called Jesus Lord. Interesting. The King James from the Textus Receptus says he called him Lord. Four times Ellen White says he called him Lord. The new translations based upon Sinaiticus and Vaticanus say he didn't call him Lord. Interesting. So you have to ask yourself, wait a minute. Who is telling us the truth here? We've looked at that. One more thing is First uh, Timothy 3 verse 16. Great is the mystery of godliness. And again, in Australia, 1798, when Ellen White was using other Bible translations, she never went to these translations that did not include the evidence that Jesus is God. She always used that one. In fact, she even said, our Bible teachers must teach the divinity of Jesus from this Bible text. Now, if you go to the other translations, it, you cannot teach the divinity of Jesus. As I studied this, I said, what is happening here? And these are the three things I have concluded so far in my study. Very interesting. By the way, 1 Peter 2 verse 21 clears up the issue if Jesus was a liar. Remember John 7 verse 7 and 8? I go not up yet. 
1 Peter 2, 21-22 says, He never deceived. That's the answer to the other question. What did I find so far? Ellen White used Bible translations in the following three ways. And here are three keys I would like to suggest to you. So I'm saying, don't throw out your other translations. Use them. How did she use them? And I found out she did this consistently. Okay? She speaks and she says this. Um, she used them when they said in a clearer way what was already in the King James. Did you hear that? Because the King James has some words that mean different things. If I say, winked at, what do I mean? Hey, I'm doing that. Not in the King James. Winked at means to overlook. That's opposite of what it means today. When I wink at you, it shows I am looking at you. I'm taking notice of you. Winked at in the 400 years ago meant to not look at, to overlook. When the King James says, we who are alive will not prevent those from going to heaven. That's the old King James. Prevent. That comes from the word pre-event. Pre-event means to go ahead of. Ah, so we will not prevent those. Nowadays, prevent means to stop. Back then, prevent means to go ahead of. The King James has certain words that have changed in meaning. Passions. Passions means emotions. Now it means a little different. Okay, happily. That's perhaps. So some of the words have changed in meaning. Some of the words, nobody knows what it means. What's a quartonian? Okay, what is a habergen? Anybody know what a habergen is? No. Okay, it's in the King James. Okay, what is Sith? Nobody knows what Sith is. Really. These words nobody understands. I even went to my mom and said, Mom, what is a whoremonger? She said, I don't know. Okay, but anyway, so, so some words we just don't understand. The reason, so what did she do? Listen to this. Ellen White used new translations. Number one, what? When they said more clearly what was already in the King James. Are you clear on that? She did use them, but she always went back. Now, what's interesting is number two. She then used new translations when they said more correctly. By the way, you are aware that every now and then, the King James has one or two mistakes in the translation. Everybody's aware of that, because it was human beings who translated it. But Ellen White, led by the Spirit, went where they co correctly translated things, because there are a few translational problems, a few. But she was led. So she used it when it was clearer, number one, and number two, more correct. And then number three, she used the King James for concepts, major doctrinal concepts, like the divinity of Jesus. Luke 23, 42. 1 Timothy 3, 16. She used the King James because these, it brings out more correctly, more clearly, some major concepts. Concepts. Now, I am not suggesting you should throw out your Bible translations. Over the years, my wife and I have taken the opportunity, the Lord has given us this chance, to read the Bible through. Now, I'm not going to ask a survey, but I already know the facts almost everywhere where I go. If I ask how many of you as Seventh-day Adventists have read God's love letter cover to cover, oh, it's a dismal few. <laughs> okay, you know what I mean. This is God's love letter to us. Our important task is to spend time reading His love letter to us. Because if we do, we will get to know the author of the love letter. So what have I suggested? I suggest reading the Bible through every year. Take time. Read it through cover to cover. But use as your, your check. Always go back to the King James Version as your basis. My wife and I have read different Bible translations over time. We've even read paraphrases. Now, please note, I tell people about paraphrases. If you've got a paraphrase, lock it in your closet at home. Don't let the kids get a hold of it. Okay? 
Why? Paraphrases are sometimes way off. No matter who did the paraphrase. Lock them in the closet. It's not for children to get a hold of. Okay? Because they can get confused by what the author thinks the Bible says. But there are many good translations, formal translations. There are dynamic translations. But you need to have some basis from which to operate. I suggest that the King James, the Texas Receptus, from all the evidence, from the way God led Ellen White. In fact, one more statement from her. Listen to this. This one will surprise you. Wow. Here's what she said. This one is going to surprise you. She said this, talking about the Bibles, the manuscripts, listen carefully, the manuscripts of the Hebrew and Greek scriptures have been preserved through the ages by a miracle of God. And what was she talking about? The Masoretic text of the Old Testament and the Textus Receptus of the Greek, okay? Which is the foundation of the King James Version. Now, don't throw out your other Bibles. Use them when they say what is in the King James more correctly. I need to share a story with you. I might have done it at the last uh, time, but the Bible is so important. 30-second story. I was at Andrews University, and uh, I was trying to register. It took me three days. I was so angry. As I walked out of that administration building, I said to myself under my breath, if I had some dynamite here, I'd blow up this building. Yeah, I did. And that very instant when I said that, immediately into my brain flooded the words, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. The words from Isaiah 55. And you know what folks? The Bible says, thy word have I what? Hidden in my heart that I might not and guess what? The ad building is still there. Okay? It's a fact. Go to Andrews today. Alright? The, the point I'm making is we, you and I, must spend time in the Word of God. Use different translations, but make sure you go back to the King James as your study Bible. Hide it in your heart, and when the devil tempts you, whether it be a big thing like blowing up the ad building at Andrews, or a small thing like taking a second look when you know you shouldn't, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Before we pray, just a reminder, if you want to, write your questions on and drop them off on the table in the back there. Or if you're coming out the front, just drop them off here on the piano, somewhere here. And remember, we're going to continue talking about 1844, the whole confusion of Bible translations, all starting in 1844, at the same time that God was raising up a people to emphasize the Bible as the foundation for all our beliefs. Fascinating. 1844, all these major movements were arising. I'm going to make an appeal here before we pray. How many of you want to say, not before me, but to God, Lord, help me to spend more time, more faithfully in your holy word so I can get to know Jesus Christ, the living word. Raise your hands. I want to pray for you. Thank you, Father, for your written word. May we spend time. You see, Lord, the hands raised as a desire to spend more time in your written word. So we can get to know Jesus Christ, our Savior, the living Word of life. In His name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Hope to see you at 3 o'clock this afternoon.